<clears throat> this is the last day of this April 2021 five-day online session. We'll go back to uh, our text from yesterday. Uh, this is uh, a book called Zen Dawn, translated by J.C. Cleary. And uh, we left off yesterday with uh, the predecessor uh, to Bodhidharma, a teacher by the name of Gunabhadra. Uh, there was just a little left uh, of, of his the, the little section, little chapter on him. So I'm going to skip that and go to Bodhidharma. Uh, just reading from this same book. The subtitle of the book is uh, Early Zen Texts from Dunhuang, the uh, Dunhuang Caves uh, in northwestern China. This is a little, little bit of biographical information about this founder of Zen. The Dharma teacher, Bodhidharma, was a man of southern India the third son of a local monarch. His intellect was very incisive and clear, and he clearly understood what he was taught. His will was set on the great vehicle, the Mahayana, so he abandoned lay life and became a monk. He perpetuated the seed of the sages and made it flourish. With deepest mind, empty and still, he saw through and comprehended the things and events of the world. By the way, this is all a translation of the, the ancient texts that were found in those caves. So it's the language is, uh, well, not quite in the contemporary style. Inner and outer, he was clear about it all. His virtue went beyond the world. His compassion and concern reached every corner of the land. The true Dharma was in decline, so he came from afar, across mountains and seas, traveling to teach in the lands of China. Those who cultivated mind-emptied still silence all believed in him. It's quite a ponderous way to translate to describe Zazen, the type who cling to forms and fixate on opinions began to slander and denounce him. Yeah, it's, were, this, as the story goes, uh, he, because as, a, as a, a foreigner from India arriving in China, there were those who uh, resented his uh, fame and, and, um, he was some monk poisoned him, uh, so the story goes. I just want to rewind to this sentence earlier. His will was set on the great vehicle, so he abandoned lay life and became a monk. It reminds me of a saying in Zen when thoughts of the way are strong, worldly thoughts are weak. When thoughts of the 
when worldly thoughts are strong, thoughts of the way are weak. There have probably been tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of men and women over the centuries who have been very much drawn to householder life, to marrying and having children, but who who were even more, for, for whom this coming to awakening was even more important. And they, at least then, at least then, uh, could not see how to do both. And so this, their aspiration to realize the way um, eclipsed whatever natural wishes they may have to have a family and make money. Sashin is, at least <laughs> in-person Sashin, is rather like a a period of monastic practice. And this this passage, I got it from Roshi Kaplow, when thoughts of the way are strong, worldly thoughts are weak, and so forth, uh, is one that would also very much work f f in Sashin, that whatever we're missing out in the world, in the way of uh, all the work that is going undone by our being in Sashin, by all the many things, we, worldly things we might be doing, uh, still, if we're in Sashin, it means that thoughts of the way are still strong, at least for that stretch of time, those five days or seven days, um, they prevail. It really is, it's a, it's a, it's a week or five days of monasticism. The text continues, during this time, he had only the two monks, Dao Yu and Wei Ke with him. Wei Ke was uh, his became his Dharma heir. Though they were younger, they brought with them wills that were lofty and far-reaching. Being fortunate enough to meet with the Dharma teacher, they served him many years, respectfully seeking instruction. So this was after Bodhidharma got to China. These are these are Chinese. They learned well encountering the teacher's intent. Moved by their fine energy and sincerity, the Dharma teacher instructed them in the true path. Moved by their fine energy and sincerity. Uh, what springs to mind at the moment is uh, Roshi Kaplow saying, no teacher can resist a serious student. He taught them how to uh, pacify mind, how to develop practice, how to accord with beings. Uh, 
and how to employ skillful means. These are four huge things. First of all, uh, how to bring the mind to rest. As we know, it's no simple thing. How to develop practice. How to accord, how to live harmoniously with others who, who may not be practicing the Dharma or have any interest in it. Being able to uh, flow like clouds and water uh, in all circumstances. And then finally, how to employ skillful means. This is the uh, what it all comes down to in terms of influencing others, teaching, or influencing others in the in the Dharma, is uh, finding the the right thing to say or do or not say or not do at the right time for that person, for that person. It could be different from from any other person. This is the great vehicle teaching for pacifying mind. Let there be no error. Those who pacify mind like this do wall gazing. Those who develop practice like this do the four practices. We'll get to that in a minute. Those who accord with beings like this prevent slander and dislike. Those who have skill in means like this dispense with what does not apply. Here I abbreviate what is to be followed. The message is in the text below. So this uh, this whole thing I've been reading this morning, uh, obviously it was not written by Bodhidharma himself. It's not clear who did it, who wrote it. But um, uh, now comes Bodhidharma's words. There are many roads for entering the path, but in essence they do not go beyond two kinds. One is entering through inner truth, and the other is entering through practice. Entering through inner truth means using the teachings to awaken to the source. That's the key word in this, in this uh, path of the inner truth, is awakening. It means deep belief that living beings, both ordinary and sage, share one and the same true nature. It is just because of the false coverings of alien dust that it is not manifested. If you abandon the false and return to the real, concentrate your attention and gaze like a wall, not just at a wall, but gaze like a wall, then there is no self and others. And ordinary and sage are equal. Ordinary and sage, you could understand also in many people's minds as the enlightened and the unenlightened. It's just because of the false coverings of alien dust that it is not manifested.
and I can't remember one of the early masters also said uh, this mind is bright and self-luminous but it is stained by adventitious defilements it is stained by well in Bodhidharma's words by dust from the outside He continues with this this path of inner truth. Firmly abiding and unmoving, you no longer fall into the verbal teachings. This is tacit accord with the real inner truth. Without discrimination, it is still and nameless. This is called entering through inner truth. You no longer fall into the verbal teachings. Having seen through words and concepts and all teachings. And so it was that Zen came to be known for centuries as a teaching beyond words without reliance on the sutras. The mystical sect of Buddhism. Direct experience not learning, not memorizing, just the direct experience. So that's the direct way. That's what we talk about all the time. That's the the, the very heart of Zen is awakening to the reality that we are. And then the other way, and, and I'm saying this because this can be, a, these are good secondary practices that can support the root practice of just seeing directly the nature of reality. And this other path is, is, includes four practices. What are the four practices, he asks? First, the practice of repaying wrongs. Second, the practice of going along with the causal nexus. Third, the practice of not seeking anything. And fourth, the practice of, of according with the Dharma. And then he takes one, uh, each one in sequence. What is the practice of repaying wrongs? When receiving suffering, when experiencing suffering, a practitioner who cultivates the path should think to himself, so this is while suffering misfortune, pain or misfortune. During countless ages past, I have abandoned the root and pursued the branches, flowing into the various states of being and giving rise to much rancor and hatred. The transgression, the harm done, has been limitless. Though I do not transgress now, this suffering is a disaster left over from former lives. The results of evil deeds have ripened. This suffering is not something given by gods or humans. And another translation of this first one, what the in this text is called the practice of repaying wrongs, is the requital of hatred. 
it's uh, it's being when when in really in bad shape when suffering either physically or emotionally to find some relief by reflecting on the fact that it must be the effect of previous causes that one generated oneself it's not given by gods or others it's owning up to the law of, of cause and effect that every effect every experience is the effect of, of a previous cause it's a strong medicine bitter medicine but it really can help um, get us through such difficult periods. He goes on, you should willingly endure the suffering without anger or complaint or resentment or blaming others. The sutra says, doesn't say which sutra, Encountering suffering, one is not concerned. Why? Because one is conscious of the basic root. The basic root. I would take that to mean the, the root being that ultimately there, there, is no, there is no root to the suffering. There's no roots. We're not bound permanently to the suffering. Like everything else, it's uh, subject to changing causes and conditions. In other words, it is empty fundamentally. It's another way to understand the root. And then he continues, when this attitude towards suffering is born, you are in accord with inner truth. And even as you experience wrongs, you advance on the path. Thus it is called the practice of repaying wrongs. Uh, I pulled out of my files these words of Matthew Arnold, uh, who lived in the uh, early 1800s, or actually through much of the 1800s. This is what he said: "We do not, we do not what we ought, what we ought not, we do, and lean upon the thought that chance will bring us through, but our own acts." For good and ill are mightier powers. We, we, we cause, we, we, we misbehave, we, we cause harm to others uh, because we aren't completely convinced that it's going to lead to our own suffering. We think we can get away with something. But uh, according to the, the law of karma, there is no way out. There's no way we can get away. It's, uh, what is that? Who said this? I forget. Someone in the West, I think, 
um, the, the mills of the gods grind slowly but exceedingly fine. What, uh, what may cause us to not take this so seriously, to think that we may be able to get away with something, is because we, we know there are people who lead terrible lives and do uh, a lot of harm, greedy, hostile things and, uh, and don't seem uh, to face any reckoning before death. But if you can wrap your mind around rebirth, then we can always uh, assume that the reckoning will come, if not this lifetime, and then others. I once had... Uh, Someone asked me, Ken, uh, Ken Kraft, um, a longtime member of the center and author, Zen books and other books, and um, he said on, on the phone, uh, do you think that karma, the doctrine of karma, could be a talisman? And uh, I knew what he meant. I had to go look up the word, which I've already forgotten. But it, uh, it means is it something... Um, a kind of magical idea um, for um, understanding reality. And, uh, yeah, it could be. I mean, how, who, can, who can... What empirical proof is there of, of the doctrine of karma? But the reason I've always believed it is it, it first of all it's so eminently reasonable it's so reasonable it's so makes so much sense cause and effect not chance but cause and effect and that not to mention the fact that so many of these great masters for centuries completely accepted it I always figure if I'm not sure about something and thousands of enlightened masters have taken it to heart, I'll go with them. So, in other words, this first, this... Uh, practice of requital of hatred or practice of repaying wrongs means uh, when we do suffer uh, that we um, don't resort to the idea that it's not fair, that it's life isn't fair, that somehow this is undeserved, uh, God is unjust, um, and, and, and if we can uh, not react that way. If we can just manage to find our way through it, and, and even if, if it takes thinking, yes, okay, this is something that I set in motion, and I'm just sort of expiating the karma that I sowed, 
If we can do that, then it, yeah, it is an expiation of karma. But if, when we are suffering, we do the opposite, we lash out at this person or that person or life or, or whatever, then we remain bound. We're not requiting it. We're not expiating the karma. We're bound to it. Second is the practice of going along with the causal nexus, uh, or a, a, another translation is uh, adapting to the causal nexus. Sentient beings have no selves, but are transformed in a manner causally linked to their deeds. They receive both suffering and happiness. Both are born from causal conditions. If we get good rewards, glory and fame and the like, this is brought about by past causes. We receive them now, but when the causal nexus is ended, they will not be there. So how can we rejoice? Gain and loss follow the causal nexus. Mind is neither augmented nor diminished. If the wind of joy does not stir, that is the wind of joy at our good fortune or our sorrow at our loss, does not stir, you deeply accord with the path. This is called the practice of going along with the causal nexus. So accepting things as they are, concurring. This doesn't mean uh, not working to change things as we, we might be able to in the circumstances. It doesn't mean just passively lying down and, and um, imagining that fate is, is more than us. It means that what we can't change, what, is, what has happened to us, uh, our, our, our suffering, that we uh, find a way to adapt to it, we accommodate it, we accept it. Well, this can be exceedingly difficult in the case of suffering, and that's where practice comes in, of course. You know, karma, having said that, makes a lot of sense to me. And by the way, it doesn't really matter whether you believe it or not to practice Zen. You don't have to be sitting and thinking about karma. It's just that in in very adverse conditions and really periods of uh, when you're in really suffering, it can help. It can help as a kind of a tool to bring out so you don't get too caught up in your story of suffering or um, injustice. But karma can, can, can become kind of a fetish if you're thinking all the time about karma. Um, I, I have a story here um, from this good collection, great collection of stories from around the world. It's called... Uh, the, the, the more recent edition is called Soul Food. Uh, the earlier edition was uh, Stories of the Spirit, Stories of the Heart, uh, and it was compiled by Jack Cornfield and Christina Feldman. Here's the story, which
which I see that I read uh, a couple years ago. Um, the Buddha, in his travels, encountered a Jain whose practice, Jain is a somewhat related to Buddhism, but uh, really not the same, um, a Jain who, whose practice consisted of standing still on one leg. <laughs> a little explanation here. Um, there are some bizarre practices uh, that I've heard about in India where people get in their their mind that if they can it's a it's a I guess the idea is that if you can subject yourself to suffering uh that's bad enough that somehow that's expiating karma which is a, a real miss would be a misreading of what Bodhidharma was teaching but let, let's continue with the story so this guy's standing still on one leg. The Buddha asked him. You could just see him, the Buddha, calmly regarding this guy standing on one leg and saying, Would you tell me why you are doing this? What will this practice of standing on one leg do for you? The Jain replied, Through this practice I am working out my karma. It will free me of all past karma. The Buddha asked him, How much have you worked out so far? The Jain replied, I could not say. The Buddha then asked, Well, how much karma do you still have left to work out? The Jain again replied, I do not know. Lastly, the Buddha asked him, But how will you know when you have finished working out your karma? Again, the Jain could only answer, this I do not know. At this reply, the Buddha spoke to him, saying, It is time for you to set aside this practice and to understand the path to the end of suffering. It lies within the truth of each moment, here and now. So karma can be a... Yeah, a, a preoccupation... And uh, whereas I think it has has a purpose, as we said earlier, when you're really kind of casting about for an explanation, why me, why me, uh, then it can help dislodge you from your um, self-pity or whatever. But uh, otherwise, we don't need to dwell on, on this doctrine of karma. And the same with rebirth. Um, the Buddha was once asked by a, a, someone he encountered there in India 2,500 years ago about uh, his past lifetime, that is, the, the questioner's past lifetime. And uh, the Buddha simply said, if you want to know what you were in the past, look at yourself now. If you want to know what you'll be in the future, look at yourself now. And that's real practice, looking into ourselves now, 
not dwelling in either the past or the future. I used to, uh, at really rough periods of Sashin, I would, I could, I could, it would help me um, get through a block of sitting or a round of sitting. Just the quick fleeting thought, nothing more, not dwelling on this, but just, okay, I'm expiating karma here. I can do this. And I also came across from our own Western tradition, from uh, the English uh, Samuel Butler from uh, the 1800s, where he said the following, everyone has a mass of bad work in him, which he will have to work off and get rid of before he can do better. And indeed, the more lasting one's ultimate good work is, the more sure he is to pass through a time, and perhaps a very long one, in which there seems very little hope for him at all. We must all sow our spiritual wild oats. I think of Roshi Kaplow with this. Oh, he had a hell of a time when he started Zen practice. His sashins were hellish. But he was so desperate to come to come to terms with his suffering. And not just desperate, but grounded in so much faith that he could sustain that kind of effort. He told me he hated Sashin. He hated Sashin. But he knew, he knew that there was something there that would ultimately liberate him, as it did. It's all a question of faith. How much faith do you have in this way, this method, this tradition? If you have enough, you can last an awfully long time. and come out the other end. The third, the practice of not seeking anything. Another uh, translation has it, uh, non-attachment. Worldly people are always deluded, craving everything, becoming attached everywhere. This is called seeking. The wise awaken to the real. Using inner truth, they reach the conventional world. Let me just pause there. Reaching, uh, using inner truth. What does that mean? Well, it can only mean one thing. Inner truth is 
um, the our innate wisdom. And what is that? When all is said and done, it's the wisdom that uh, of 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 impermanence. That nothing is fixed. That we can, like Roshi Kaplow and many others, we can reform ourselves because there's no self there. There's no fixed self. So we can, through practice and training, we can change ourselves. Pacifying mind without contrived activity, changing shape as they go, the myriad states of being are thereby emptied. That's... uh, Look at that. The myriad states of being. Well, this is the experience of Sashin. Going from one state of mind to another, passing through emotional states, states of, of ease, states of hardship, maybe euphoria, despair, discouragement, irritation, The myriad states of being are thereby emptied. That is, we we find through zazen, we find a way to find our way through them, through zazen, through not reacting to these states, not getting caught in them, but by holding fast to the practice. That's how we uh, we empty, so-called empty these these states of any. Um, Binding power. He, he says, dwell for long in the triple world. It is like a house on fire. It is this, this world of samsara, this world of joy and loss tears, blood and tears, gain and loss. It's like a house on fire. And then he says, one of my favorite words, passages of Bodhidharma, he says, everyone who has a body is an heir to suffering and a stranger to peace. This is the the Buddha's first noble truth. Suffering is pervasive. If we're not suffering now, we will be. At the very least, we'll be suffering as, as our body breaks down. We die. Plenty of times, probably before then. Emotional, just emotional. Never mind physical, the way the body breaks down where it's subject to sickness and injury and deterioration, pain, but emotional pain. Who could possibly deny this first of the Four Noble Truths? And the question then becomes, what are we doing about it? Are we just going to keep plodding along through our lives and being 
ambushed by this or that that causes us suffering? Well, obviously, no one who's listening to this now is doing that. He continues, When this is completely comprehended, thoughts of the various states of being cease, and there is no seeking. The sutra says, doesn't say which sutra, all who seek suffer. If there is no seeking, only then is there bliss. Well, seek, let's be clear, uh, seeking the Dharma is a, 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 the worthiest of forms of seeking. Um, the problem comes when we are seeking out of self-interest, when we're seeking uh, to grasp an advantage to ourselves, which is, is perfectly normal. We all would love to uh, find things and reach things, money and other things that will keep us more comfortable. But all the only point here is that yeah, even if, when we do, um, there still comes suffering. No, no matter how much we manage to arrange our lives so that we can get everything the way we want, the, the perfect job with the perfect partner, with the perfect house in the perfect neighborhood with the perfect cars uh, with the perfect art uh, and on and on and on perfect body with uh, all of the exercise regimens and everything no matter how much we we achieve in those things we will still be left wanting that's it the buddha recognized this but our desires are ceaseless. So then, if we can never completely uh, gratify all our desires, of all of our different kinds of desires, then what do we do? Well, one is to reduce our desires. Not endlessly try and if you're in, in futility to satisfy all of them, but to start trimming things that aren't necessary really to our happiness. Maybe a better translation than seek is, is craving, or uh, there are different kinds of desires. Um, so it's not desire, period, that somehow we have to try to... <laughs> get rid of, uh, but um, if there, there are, there are call higher desires and there are lower base desires and um, material desires. What really, what really will this bring us? And then fourth, the practice of according with a Dharma. He says the Dharma the teaching of reality is based on the inner truth of the inherent purity of all things. 
By this inner truth, the multitude of forms are all empty. There is no defilement, no attachment, no this, no that. The Sutra says, <coughs> The Dharma has no sentient beings because it is detached from the impurity of sentient beings. The Dharma has no self because it is detached from the impurity of self. Well, impurity here means anything is impure compared to nothing. It's a, really a way to understand uh, in, in, uh, the idea of purity is is nothing, no thing. Once we have things, especially a self, uh, then there is, from this point of view, there's impurity. He says, if the wise can believe... By the way, it just occurred to me, the sutra, when he says the sutra says, um, I'm guessing he's quoting from the Lankavatara Sutra, uh, that was reportedly Bodhidharma's favorite sutra. If the wise can believe and understand with certainty this inner truth, they ought to practice in accord with the Dharma. The body of the Dharma is not stingy with a physical body and life. This is practicing giving. Let there be no stinginess or holding back in the heart. Realizing that the one receiving the gift the giver and the gift itself are all empty. You don't depend on them or get attached to them. So here I'm um, talking about um, dana. Dana, D-A-N-A, -A, means generosity or charity or giving. It's the first of the uh, eight, six, six paramitas. And uh, there's giving and there's giving. There's giving... Uh, with attachment, expecting something back, if nothing else, but thanks. And then the purest giving, the dana paramita, the perfection of giving, is what he's describing here. You don't depend on them or get attached to them. They are just used to they just used to get rid of impurities and embrace and transform sentient beings without grasping at forms. That is, just pure giving. This is benefiting oneself and also being able to benefit others and being able to adorn the path of enlightenment. Since the perfection of giving is thus, so are the other five. These are the other five paramitas of perfections. Uh, morality, uh, patience or forbearance, uh, zeal, uh, meditation and wisdom. To practice the six perfections to remove false thinking and yet to have nothing that is practiced, that's, that's the emptiness, this is the practice of according with the Dharma. Of the six perfections, the six paramitas, really it's it's giving. It's giving that is rightfully the number one. Uh, and it all comes down to our practice. In, our, in, in doing zazen, we are... Um, that is the, the very 
ultimate in giving because we are giving up our thoughts. No, nothing is dearer to us as human beings than our thoughts. And to give those up through single-minded absorption in the practice of working on, that is giving. Giving to the whole universe and to ourself. Before we, uh, before we do the four vows, uh, just a word about the schedule. Um, each day this session, I've been uh, uh, sitting here in the Zendo at Arnold Park uh, and uh, sitting for a while before going upstairs and giving doksan to the people here in the Zendo um, before going home. Uh, today, um, I'll have to forego that sitting period, that settling period after Teisho, and uh, right after Kinhin, uh, we'll just have to start right in with, uh, with Doksan here so that I can get home and uh, start with the online uh, Zoom Doksan. We'll stop now and recite the four vows. <laughs> 